You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion across the autism community. If you haven't already, subscribe to the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky, and I'm excited to welcome Dr. Eric Larson to the podcast to talk with us about medical necessity in the field of ABA. Dr. Larson is a licensed psychologist and board-certified behavior analyst and holds the position of Executive Director of Clinical Services at the Lobos Institute Midwest. He's been providing intensive early intervention services since 1976 and has supervised such services since 1983. He regularly consults on the development of Medicaid and insurance coverage for intensive early intervention and is recognized worldwide as an expert in the area of early intervention, autism, disability rights, and more. Medical necessity in autism is so important, and that's what we're here today to talk about as it increases access to services through insurance coverage, increases family buy-in, gives a better prognosis for care. I'm so excited. Let's dive in, Dr. Larson. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm really interested in participating today. Well, I'd, I'd love for everybody to get the spiel of, of who you are and all your accomplish, accomplishments, but tell me, how did you get your start? In 1976, you know, autism services weren't as prevalent, weren't as, uh, there weren't so many opportunities out there. So how did you get into the field while it was in its infancy? Well, I had the, just the chance uh, occurrence of, I'm, an, I was an undergraduate at the State University of New York College at Cortland and um, had started to focus in on being interested in uh, applied behavior analysis because by, like you said, hardly anybody really knew about either ABA or autism at the time, but there was this very small cadre of professors who were all like-minded, um, who were putting together a, an ABA-focused program because, and I didn't go there for this reason, I just fell into it because one of my professors had adopted a son who had autism without even knowing that his son had any special needs. And as the son um, grew to age three and four, it became obvious, wow, he's not talking, um, he's got autism. And my professor, uh, who was an animal behaviorist, was working in the lab with pigeons, and I was working in his lab with pigeons. Um, he knew enough to call Lovas, who just a few years earlier had decided to stop trying to work in the institutions and work in families' homes because we saw there was so much more effectiveness working with younger kids in their own home environments instead of, you know, shipping them off as, as was the custom at the time. So his name was Bob Lear. L-E-H-R, and Bob calls up Ivar and says, um, what do I do? My son's got autism. And Ivar says, well, you need to work with him around the clock, and there's no funding for it. So the thing to do, you're a professor, is start a practicum class and give your students 
college credit for working with your son. And um, so he did. And just like every parent, especially back in those days, they just go to the mat for their kids and, um, you know, no hesitation. So the um, that's how I fortunately got started. I wasn't really even thinking about working with kids or, or adults or um, at all. I was thinking about the experimental analysis of behavior. And um, but by the time I'd finished working with Bob and several other um, behavior analysts with kids at Cortland, um, I was I switched my focus from working in the experimental lab to working in the field with kids. I always find that to be such an easy jump because these kids are so powerful in the way that they create those connections to you. And it's like, okay, maybe I didn't want to, maybe this wasn't what I was seeking. But when you find it, sometimes you just really find it. And what I'd like to know is, is you jumped into this. You started out with a underfunded service. You started out probably at a time where even getting two hours of specialist was a, a wow sort of factor for families because they just didn't exist all the time. There's nothing. Would you have thought that right now we'd be having discussions about medical necessity and discussions about insurance payers back in 1976? I mean, did you think that we'd be where we're at now? Well, at the time, it seemed obvious that this is the thing to do, you know, and I ended up at the University of Kansas in their preschool um, based program. Um, and it, we knew by then that this was innovative and most of the world was not thinking like a behavior analyst. But the um, it just seemed like this was inevitable that, of course, we're in the forefront and the world's going to come along with us. Um, soon to be disabused of that notion um, <laughs> and find out that now the world, even today, is still not necessarily understanding what this is all about. Mm -hmm. But I mean, just even having that transition to where now we're seeing it as a in a lot of places, a protected service. It's it's medically justified. It has value beyond the research walls and the practical implementation is showing so much of a chance to be able to remediate and to change the trajectory of one's life that um, that we're now getting to have these bigger discussions. And that, that excites me. And what I'd love to be able to do is just get everybody on the same page right now on, you know, what exactly is medical necessity? How does that relate to uh, provision of service? And what does that mean for a family? So if we could just even start with defining what medical necessity means, because I think that's confusing for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, um, you know, again, it, it just seemed so obvious when you look at it through the eyes of a parent um, back in those days, especially a parent who was um, becoming aware of the possibilities of behavior analysis. Their goal was to develop their children's skills, and uh, that's not obvious to an insurance company even today. Um, this this whole term medical necessity 
I'm sure it came out also out of the medical field for different biological treatments. I'm sure there are people who are seeking coverage for biological treatments that an insurance company determines isn't medically necessary. And in the field that we were in, very obviously it was this assumption that what these parents are after is really just expensive babysitting because kids have zero promise. So, you know, back in the 1980s, we had the movie Rain Man and um, the premise of Rain Man was a true premise was this, this family had been told, send your son off to an institution and don't even tell his siblings about him. So it's such a powerful movie, just seeing the attitude that so many in society even today have that there's no hope for this person. You might as well throw him away and forget about him. And, you know, Tom Cruise had forgotten his brother and, um, and discovers early in the movie, I've got a brother. And, um, and that was what was happening to people and families because most providers and psychiatrists, schools, people didn't think there was any value to trying to help these people because they assumed there, there was no help for them. Yeah, I mean, and and they couldn't be more wrong. I mean, obviously, right. you see so many people contributing in so many ways in society that are just different. I mean, they're differently abled, and autism is another component of either I have different perspectives, I have different way that I engage the world around me. That doesn't mean less promise. And when we look at medical necessity, you you had mentioned insurers, and I do want to get to the insurance topic, but I've always thought about it as layers. Is that I think that there's a big education that has to occur. And I mean, that goes from everywhere from providers understanding medical necessity. And I think there's a gap in the field for that. I think uh, mm-hmm. the referral sources, that first chain, what those touch points, as you mentioned, schools, back in the, the late 70s, early 80s, is that schools would say, hey, there's no hope. Let's just send them to an institution. Whereas now, you know, ideally, the schools are identifying medically appropriate treatments and referring the family to say, hey, go seek some extra supports or we can bring the supports in house, which would both be appropriate means. Um, Even physicians, pediatricians didn't have training on autism until just recently. Uh, And then you have the legislative factors. You have legislators making decisions on what's medically appropriate without really understanding what they're putting into mandates at times. And then even the families, the families don't because they're getting all their information from so many different sources is that oftentimes they don't know what they're entering into. So maybe we can tackle this one at a time and maybe we can start with just the provider network. And I mean, are there barriers that you're seeing right now to how the provider network might be interacting with families, with other people in the community on educative efforts? on understanding medical necessity? Is there something that we should be doing differently or is is it good? I mean, I don't know where those gaps might be. Well, it's almost getting more confused now as people um, take the lens of social justice and look at the treatment of people who used to be called disabled and now embrace the concept of, of 
neurodiversity in the area of autism. And, and I want to be clear, early on to me, what seemed obvious was both the schools and the insurance companies and Medicaid were assuming there was no hope for this person because they could not be habilitated. And that was a, a big term back in the 90s. Um, but many advocates, even back then, as we were working in deinstitutionalization, recognized whether or not you can develop skills like meaningful work skills or something or uh, be able to access the community without needing extensive supports. You're still a, a human being and you deserve the level of supports that enable you to, to live the quality of life that you envision for yourself. And so it's as I talk about this distinction between expensive babysitting and treatment, um, I'm not saying that a child only deserves medically necessary care if they can benefit from it. Um, but the starting point for me going back into my evolution was the insurance company and the school districts were writing off people who they didn't see could potentially benefit and really didn't even really have a concept that people could behaviorally benefit. Once you had a diagnosis, you're stuck with it. And all you can get is the most cost efficient care. So let's send you off to an institution where you know one nurse can be responsible for 60 people all day and at least they're not a big problem for society. Um, but when we started, and again, going back to those days with the assumption that, well, we can actually not just provide compassionate care for the person, but we can actually help them develop more independence. We can free them of the shackles of lack of communicative ability or disruptive behaviors and we can then let them elevate to a higher quality of life. Uh, the insurance companies didn't see that as something that was even realistic. So they doubted Lovas's 1987 findings and they, they demanded replication as evidence that what we were recommending was medically necessary. And um, and they and I think they pretty much assumed we wouldn't produce the evidence that the kids could benefit because they didn't see that it was possible. Um, and even today, a lot of the neurodiversity movement, I think, is rests on a belief that don't even worry about helping this person develop. Just go ahead and provide the compassionate care they deserve as a human being which again is fine, but this term medical necessity is hinges on really just the cost of care and whether or not a private insurance company should be paying for this care. And yeah. I think, again, the insurance companies assumed, well, send them off the institution and Medicaid pays for them. We don't. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if you look at it through the lens that you're saying and the quality of life and that you have barriers 
that are there that can be broken down that just open up more opportunity to be your best self or to be able to engage in the way that you would like to and have more self-determination, one yep. would think that obviously that, that would be a medically appropriate treatment. If that's what it's going to do for me, well, I want to take that step. And I think that construct has been broken down over time, but I laughed when you said a replication study, because even in 2000, I think it was 2009, um, as part of the uh, the mandate in uh, change in Utah, we had to replicate the study again in the state of Utah to be able to demonstrate, hey, it works here too. And it's like, okay, it, it, there are hoops that were pushed through, but some of those barriers over time have been broken down with insurance. It's um, there has been an opening of care. It continues to have different barriers in place that that continuously step up and research ideally breaks it down again. But what do you see right now as if you were to prioritize maybe the top three things that are still causing the appropriateness of care to be provided to a, a young adult, a child, an adult through an ABA lens? What do you think that insurance, what's the biggest barrier that you're seeing at the moment? Well, again, again I think the term medical necessity comes in as, as the insurance companies attempt to draw a dividing line between what they're responsible for covering and what society should just shoulder as its responsibility. And, you know, very much the, the issue of, should, is this a school is this an educational service? So we don't cover it. Um, schools have to pay for it through special education. Um, or is this something that's just long-term custodial care? So that's something we don't have to pay for. And talking about the insurance companies again. So that they're really trying to come up with this dividing line. And I think wrongfully, the original dividing line was based on, there has to be evidence of effectiveness. And parents who were advocating in the 1990s and the early 2000s were pointing to Lovas' study and then the replications as saying, there is evidence of effectiveness. So kids do progress. The vast majority of the kids do progress if they're given the level of services they need. And, uh, and the insurance companies were kind of stubbornly assuming that's, that's flawed, that that can't be true. And it was very clear in testimony, the kinds of cross-examination we'd get in hearings um, was really coming from that standpoint. So, and now today, parents and advocates are even more savvy recognizing that insurance covers a ton of palliative care that's not at all aimed at improving the person's development or skills they're simply holding the line on a disease like cancer or something that requires uh, just medication to relieve pain. Um, insurance is covering those kinds of costs without really any expectation of improvement, but really just holding the line against deterioration. So this field and concept of medical necessity continues to evolve to the point where people need medical care and thanks to the Mental Health Parity Act, they need uh, behavioral care and 
there's a whole variety of different kinds of behavioral care that are legitimate, whether it's simply helping this person not deteriorate and, and risk death, say, from bolting, um, or uh, actually develop skills to the point where they're independent. And, and I believe that even right now is that the provider understanding is something that there needs to be more education for. They need to know what is truly stated and what the intent of the Mental Health Parity Act is, but then also to understand that, you know, as much as an insurance company can determine their own medical necessity criterion, they have to justify it and they have to justify it against what's validated research in the field. And I think these conversations are important ones, not just to have here, but to have in that moment as well, is, is when you're educating a family, educating a payer that, you know, these are the responsibilities. What would you say if you were to have the a, a whole audience, which I would imagine you've had in the past on this subject of behavior analysts, and you were to say, listen, this is what you probably need to do to empower yourself to have this dialogue instead of just, I guess, uh, accepting or deviating from your recommended treatment simply to appease somebody else. What, what would be your recommendation from prescribing authorized services all the way to appealing? I mean, what does that look like from your point of view? Well, I think that this problem of evidence, then what it led into was this assumption that we're going to automatically rubber stamp uh, treatment as medically necessary if it's 40 hours a week of ABA. And um, because that's what the evidence says. But what that is kind of the naive part of that conclusion is ABA, 40 hours a week of ABA doesn't have the same effect for each individual child or adult as for each other one. And especially in the field of autism, we know everyone is so completely different and applying this rubber stamp model of treatment is is not really meeting the needs of that individual and medical necessity should be focused on the needs of the individual so if it's medical treatment if i have skin cancer i should get a different treatment than if i have stomach cancer and for somebody to just say oh, take this one drug, you've got cancer, that's obviously inappropriate. And that's kind of where the field started to shape into uh, in the early 2000s after the uh, Surgeon General pronounced ABA as an effective treatment. Everybody just wanted 40 hours a week of one-to-one -one care. And regardless of what kind of autism the person had. So to us, what's more obvious is if it's truly applied behavior analysis, then it should be based on an individualized functional analysis of the person's actual needs. And there should be social validity measures, meaning we actually make it person-centered because we talk to the parents or the guardians or the individual to the extent they're able and determine what their real goals are. And then not just blindly apply a treatment but we evaluate the effectiveness of the treatment and modify what we do based on their effectiveness. And that's, that's really what applied behavior analysis is, 
And when we're saying this is medically necessary, we should be taking all those steps in order to provide individually what each person needs. I, I definitely appreciate that outlook. I think that um, being able to truly take both both the terminology being used right now around medical necessity and apply it to person-centered care is something that not everybody is able to navigate the right way, and especially in a field that's growing. I mean, it's it's a young field. Right? To, to say that the pioneers of the field were only 40 years ago, right? And it's, uh, as far as with autism and ABA and intensive services, it's, it's interesting to me that we have to really amp up this effort of helping people to determine how to get to the right level of care, but the tools aren't always there. Um, it, it, would you say that, I mean, it's, it sounds like it's it's a heavy dose of looking at the family functioning, the ecology, the buy-in, understanding what's important to them, paired with understanding what this child really could benefit from and what that prognosis would be. If I'm applying 25 hours for this child, expect that we could potentially get to this level of gain. And this would be appropriate for where we're at and what your parent parental goals are. Um, but is there are there tools out there being used? I mean, is there is there a third layer? I mean, we're such an objective field. Or is this something that our field needs to really work on is, you know, we also need to have objective tools to be able to do this. It can't be subjective all the time. Let's take in and layer in a third component and triangulate to get to our diagnostic or I mean, our prescriptive analysis. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, where are we right now? If you were to kind of rate us as an industry, <laughs> are we hovering at a six and we need more resources? Well, you know, I think there's some another part of the definition of what's medically necessary besides the evidence, which is still an important concept. But another part of it is preventing harm. So, you know, that that's the fundamental um admonition for medicaid medical uh, medical society medic medical treatment um is do no harm so the um we want to make sure we're not harming the family and there's so many risks through unethical treatment that we are harming the family so number one if we go to recovery-oriented treatment that we do at LOVAS, we don't want to promise the moon to every single family and just lead them blindly down uh, a three-year path, promising, of course, your child's going to recover when they're really not. Um, we want to be able to evaluate periodically throughout the treatment same way a physician would be evaluating the appropriateness of uh, a cancer drug and only provide the treatment that's actually working for that child and their neighbor next door is getting a different treatment because that version's more effective for the other child. Uh, so what we've learned unfortunately for most families is starting off doing a simple assessment in uh, a one-day uh, treatment center or uh, even a two-week assessment that we do 
um, really doesn't predict very well how well our services are going to meet a child's needs. And instead, what we've learned through our research is the child's responsiveness during the first six months is really the best determinant of their prognosis. And um, families want us to determine medical necessity based on the child's responsiveness. And if a child's not responding well, they should be getting a different focus of treatment that meets the family's vision for quality of life. And if they're responding really well, they should be all in on this. But we shouldn't just be uh, harming the family by leading them on with this rosy scenario that that's just not going to happen. And yeah. for us, about 10% of our kids really make minimal gains. Mm -hmm. And 50% of our kids make incredibly impressive gains. And it's on our shoulders to not feed into the family's hopes and, and harm them emotionally by stringing them along for a number of years and then never get anywhere. Yeah, I mean, there's no one-size-fits-all treatment. There's no one-size-fits-all outcome to that treatment. And if you're not transparent about the process, it sounds like what you're saying is that harm is inevitable, is that if a parent feels like they should be at a certain level and you're not getting them to that, is that you're you're hurting the family unit as much as you are anything else. Um, and maybe and, and that's the benefit of, of doing the reassessments, the reevaluations, taking a step back and seeing, OK, so where are we? How much gain did we make compared to what we were hoping to be able to do? Let's recalibrate what we're hoping to be able to do and reevaluate our treatment plan as well based off that. Um, but I, I think that all these things are, are wonderful coaching components. And I also believe is that you hit on it. Um, parental buy-in doesn't come from a sales pitch. It doesn't come from jumping around and showing uh, cool videos. It, I mean, it comes from seeing success of my child. Um, that's what, it's a huge commitment, and that's why parents do it. And I, the way you are looking at treatment probably is, is appreciated by all your patients at the Low Boss Institute based on the fact that you're being very transparent, very real, but you're keeping them as a member of that team constantly. So what does it what does it look like to you? I mean, we're always trying to create access to care. Creating access to care and doing it appropriately should run hand in hand. Oftentimes that there are these training barriers that might exist as you're building up a workforce or there are um, referral source barriers where even the pediatricians who are asking for a service don't quite know what they're asking for all the time. Or yeah. you might have legislative barriers. So how do we start as a community breaking some of that down? I mean, is there legislative is ground, ground up work? I mean, is there ways that a provider community could help support this educative process? Is there something families need to do? Um, what's worked for Minnesota? Yeah, well, you know, um, I served on the Behavior Analyst Certification Board, and I'm very proud of the ethical code because it starts off with you need to advocate for what's in the best interests of your person that you're serving it. And um, that doesn't mean um, put blinders on and just focus on the best interests um, within that treatment setting, but really step back and what is society failing to give that we need in order to be effective? 
And it's uh, this might be a bit of a tangent, but I think it's it's relevant to answering your question. There's two serious conflicts of interest that are kind of imposed upon providers by poorly structured funding for what we do. So if, as you're probably aware, the insurance company wants to negotiate a payment rate for your program and assume that a lot of adjunctive services that are really necessary, case management services and uh, direction of, of treatment by an experienced expert should just be bundled into the one-to-one contact rate. And a lot of things we don't cover because they aren't direct services. Um, What that does is it creates this artificial formula that an organization can only deliver if they deliver enough hours of treatment to break even on all those overhead costs. So the many providers, if they aren't really careful, fall into, well, the insurance pays for 30 hours a week. They don't pay for all these other services we need. So we're going to deliver 30 hours a week, damn it. And um, we need to in order to help our uh, families. And whether the kid needs it or not, whether he really needs 30 hours a week, whether he really needs to be pulled out of school to do home-based treatment or go to a center, um, doesn't matter. Uh, And some kids with autism, they only need two hours a week. They just need some parent training. Um, They just need uh, some social groups. And that's that's really all they really need from the parent's point of view and, and from what we're seeing is effective for the kid. But the provider can't afford to deliver a couple of hours a week. That's that's a loss leader in their service. So they automatically just provide, they, they fall into this conflict of interest of providing too many hours for one child um, because that's the only way they can afford to be in business. And conversely, on the other side of the balance, they're only providing less hours than um, the children need because that's all that the insurance company will cover and they're not going to bat to advocate for more because well this provider and this insurance company in this state covers 23 hours a week so that's what we're going to request and we're going to communicate with the parents as if this is all that's necessary even though it really isn't and their results are low for a number of the kids in their caseload. Some of the kids do fine with the 23 hours. Some didn't need 23 hours and half of them don't do as well as they could have, but the provider doesn't even have that conversation with the family because they know this is all we're gonna get. So those are conflicts of interest that I really said that's not ethically on the provider's shoulders so much as it is on the payer's shoulders who's painting them into that corner. Yeah, and I mean, it, it makes sense that those would be very difficult interests. I mean, you're on a balancing scale and it's how do you get past that? And to, to 
kind of attest to what you're saying is that I think I agree with the fact that one of the biggest things that needs to happen is education on that process to the providers to let them know how important they are in getting it right, how important they are into getting to the appropriate dosage, to the appropriate treatment plan, and to communicating that, even if it is a battle that they have to do with the payer. And they're there to support the family's treatment. Um, and there's appeals processes for that, mm-hmm. but having a tool to be able to look at and say, okay, these are, this is my assessment tool. This is what I've talked to the family about. This is how I've evaluated the ecology of the family. This is how I've looked at medical necessity to be able to determine dosage. Like taking all my tools together, mm-hmm. coming up with a plan with the family, and then sticking to it through the appeal process and only to the point where you're completely denied, <laughs> then the family <laughs> understand. We advocated for the appropriate level of care and then giving them the tools to continue that if it's necessary. But um, it is, it's hard. It's a very tough process. And I think it takes the provider resources as a whole to get to that final decision making. Um, so, I mean, you've had so much experience of this. And I mean, you've been a guide in the field quite a, quite a bit on how to be able to manage like you said, there's ethical considerations that come into play. And I've seen the same thing as you, where I've seen over-prescription, I've seen under-prescription. And I don't always think that it's intentional uh, or that it's something where somebody's doing it to consciously make that decision. But I think that we need to talk about this more. Maybe that's presenting about it more. But what advice do you have to clinicians entering the field? Because that's that's who we have to start with. We have to change the mind of, of some, but we have the chance to influence many um, And because the field is growing. So what advice do you have to those clinicians entering the field to really understand their ethical consideration to, to really prescribing what's appropriate for every single child? Yep, and so I I don't think that the insurance companies are have malicious intent when they fall into this standard one size fits all um, level of medical necessity that then motivates the providers to also provide one size fits all treatment, but the um, providers are just as potentially naive the young providers coming into the field. And they walk into a system and they contract with an insurance company and they learn from that. They learn, oh, this is the way it works. And they assume, again, they assume the insurance company is not being malicious and they're not. And they're not being malicious. So they just assume, well, everybody's doing what we all should be doing, right? And they they just fall into the, the standard formula instead of really understanding how you take you know, applied behavior analysis, research, individual studies, number of individual studies of different aspects of treatment that only each one only lasted a couple of months. How do they translate that learning into organizing and delivering a service that's individualized to different children? And again, there nobody's really laying it all out there. Nobody's really clear-headed about how do you individualize your assessment and your treatment plan in a true manner in order to be the most necessary for that person's medical needs. 
Yeah. And I mean, for, for you and, and I think for I is that we have the opportunity to reach out to peers. We have the opportunity. We have a network that, that we've grown with within this field where you have constant contacts. I don't know that every new clinician has the chance to be able to say, hey, listen, I, I really want to go deep into this. Let's talk about this. Let's develop this. Where can they turn? Like, who are their resources? Well, and and as and I think you're really just saying what I just said is this is all the information they're getting and they're assuming that the guidance from the insurance company is right on because why would they assume everybody's doing the wrong thing? That doesn't make a lot of sense um, until you've had experience in the field and until you've been exposed to leading parent advocates who make it more clear for you about what's really going on. And I certainly benefited from parent advocates. So going way back um, into the 80s and into the 70s, you know, that Bob Lear was uh, a very effective parent advocate and mm -hmm. taught me a lot about what's the right way to look at what we're doing from the standpoint of what's in the best interest of the family. And we continue to have others like Michelle Trevetti in Indiana and Laurie Unum, who's now the executive director of CASP. Um, they've, you learn a lot from these uh, parents because they see it from the standpoint of what they're really after. Mm -hmm. they're, and they're I'm glad you said that. I mean, oftentimes is that, you know, the first direction that, that a behavior analyst is going to get us. Well, go to the BACB, go to your local uh, professional behavior analyst uh, organization, which I think are great, great resources. But oftentimes people forget that last part where maybe a third step to this is go to the local autism organizations that are family run. Listen to them, too. Like get that input, like know what you should do as a behavior analyst, know what you should do in your professional life but also know the community you're serving to be able to round out a lot of that decision-making. And I don't think that many people have said what you said there as far as that parental advocate piece being an important one. And I think it needs to be echoed. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's real social validity and it's they're speaking what is valid to the consumer instead mm -hmm. of being prone to fall into these structured traps of funding. Yeah, and it's easy to do. Um, well, Dr. Larson, I appreciate your time today. And, and I always feel like it's such a privilege just to be able to kind of learn and, and kind of see what others are doing and how their perspectives are changing the field and hopefully challenging, like, like you're saying here, challenging some of the didactic sort of thought process that we have right now that this is the way we need to do it because this is the way I was told to do it and saying, hold on, freeze. <laughs> Maybe I need to look through a different angle and say, let's get back to our roots. Let's figure out what's important first and then let's start pushing forward on the, on the systems, on the techniques to get everybody to the same page again. But um, is, there, is there any sort of parting advice that you have for families? Because I don't want to neglect that piece to this because they're caught in the medical necessity trap. What would you tell a family right now that's stuck in that process? And whether it's vetting, you know, who they're working with all the way through, you know, making sure that they have a voice in every step of that process through appeals, I guess, even. But what would you tell that family? Mm -hmm. Well, there's 
these mentoring opportunities available to them, um, and there there are many. So the uh, parents that I'm naming, and I, I just I'm just starting. I could name a hundred different parents who have had to be placed into leading roles, advocating at the state level and with insurance companies all around the country and also around the world. And um, in your local area, um, that's where you want to to think when you're thinking about your own child. You want to get local and you want to look for who are the local advocates. The Your pediatrician may not be aware of who the advocates are, but there are local advocacy organizations like uh, ARC and in Minnesota, for example, that's very powerful advocacy organization. But in some states, ARC is not uh, helpful to families with autism and Autism Speaks instead is, is the place to go. So it takes a little bit of research to find who are the parent-led organizations in your state or your locality that really are advancing uh, services for your children and then get mentoring straight from them. And so often they just have a really, it's obvious to them, well, this is the worst thing in the world and you need to be doing that. <laughs> and it's, you don't need to read a textbook. You don't need to hire a lawyer, you just need to find a parent who's been in it. And uh, the betting is really good. The odds are really good that a parent who's been in the mix is going to give you good advice instead of bad advice. Yeah. And I mean, and I, I do want to end with something that maybe isn't autism related, but I think it's something that I'd love to share the platform to you on because ABA and medical necessity, and we're talking about it uh, in relations to autism, but this isn't just an autism-specific service. Is there something out there? Is there grassroots trying to be able to help for people to realize that these behavioral services, it's, it's for a variety of people, a variety of needs. Um, is this a voice that's starting to resonate? Yeah. That, uh the American Academy of Pediatrics um, is working really hard and has a lot of pediatricians who, I'll say with a smile, but it's true, a lot of pediatricians who are also parents of a child with a disability um, that can see through all the obfuscation and can see what families really need. And so many professional organizations, the, even the AMA has a very forceful article out about mental health parity right now. Um, and um, these professional organizations are aware of all the needs of the children that come to them or all the needs of adults that come to them. So there's um, these professional organizations could be the place to go to find the first step of recommendations. Uh, we have, um, I'm also the president of the Association for Science and Autism Treatment. Our focus is on separating the wheat from the chaff as far as autism treatment goes. So there are a lot of professional organizations out there. You know, I'm sure there's uh, a number of great, the American Heart Association and um, whatever the Cancer Association is, there's plenty of professionalism 
associations that are led more by professionals, but you want to take their guidance and get to a parent advocate before you tie up your plans. No, and I, I appreciate that. And I, and I love the fact that, that you see it as a broadened opportunity to be able to take the science and, and move it into the places where it will best be fit and best have suitability instead of keeping it centered just on autism is realizing that behavioral services benefits so many people. But uh, Dr. Larson, I appreciate your time, and, and I do thank you for joining us today. I found it I found it very informative, and hopefully we can get you back out here again sometime. That would be great. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.